This is a part one of two episode with Tim Barton, who is a historian expert with Wall Builders. So in this episode, prepare to hear about the history on how the economic structure of capitalism was formed and why people wanted something different than the monarchy and anarchy common structure of the day. Welcome to Money Vision U. In this podcast, we are passionate about teaching the financial class you should have had in high school so you can learn how to fast track your financial freedom. If you want to learn how to make, manage, and multiply your money and see opportunities the way the wealthy do, then you came to the right place. I'm your host, Stuart Berryhill. Money Vision U, class in session. Welcome to another episode of Money Vision U. Today we have a really neat special guest on with us. Uh, Tim Barton from Wall Builders is on the podcast, and we're going to look at some different uh, government economic structures with this episode. Long overdue. Been super excited to get this one, and I had to have Tim Barton on to talk about it. So with that being said, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Man, thanks, Stu. I appreciate it. Yeah, and just to get started, I, I mentioned wall builders and people are like, what the heck is that? I'm sure. Uh, so go ahead and give us a bio, a little bit of background on yourself and what you do with wall builders and uh, all, all your different things that you guys are doing there. Absolutely. So yeah, to clarify, if, if people hear wall builders, usually it's like a construction company is what comes to mind. It's not us at all. Uh-huh. Uh, our name comes from a, a Bible story in the book of Nehemiah in the Bible uh, Nehemiah was uh, part of the Israelites who were in the Babylonian captivity when Israel was conquered and, and they were taken into slavery. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. Uh, he looked back at his home of Jerusalem and saw that it had been destroyed and it, it grieved his heart. He wanted to go back and rebuild his, his city, his nation. And the king actually liked him enough. The king gave him permission and actually helped fund this expedition and and, and really this rebuild that Nehemiah was going to do. And and in the Bible in Nehemiah 2, verse 17, it says, Come, let us rebuild that we may no longer be a reproach to the people. And uh, about 35 years ago, my dad started our organization and it really, he kind of felt about America a little bit like Nehemiah felt about Jerusalem, that my dad was concerned with some of what was happening in the nation and some of the moral decay that was going on and he wanted to see the nation rebuilt. And so that's where the name wall builders comes from, where Nehemiah wanted people to come and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but really to to make Jerusalem a, a healthy, stable place again. And that's what we try to do a lot with America, but we do it a different perspective a little bit. We We do a lot with American history. We have what's considered one of the largest collections of original documents from the founding era of America. And the collection as a, a total, there's probably a hundred, all the way up to 160,000. We have a couple of partners we collaborate with. And in between the collections, there's about 160,000 pieces of American history. And those are either originals wow. or facsimiles, copies of originals. And we use the actual original documents to go back and say, let's see what actually happened, right? Instead of hearing what some professor says or what somebody tweeted out or what some you know meme says about American history, let's actually go back and read the documents. And what we have discovered studying actual documents from American history is that much of the American story is very different than the modern narrative today. And a lot of the propaganda being promoted today is not only historically inaccurate, it's very intentionally misleading 
promoting an agenda that, as we'll talk about today with some of these different ideological positions from political parties, they're promoting ideas that have never worked historically and they can't work. They're not sustainable, but because people don't know history and because people have just kind of been taught to embrace and believe whatever they're told. If somebody in authority, if, if somebody in that position tells you, you should just right believe it, take down your notes, repeat what mm-hmm. they said on the test. And so we have seen culture embrace a lot of really bad ideas. And we spent a lot of time in American history actually saying, here's what actually happened in America, right? Here's who the good guys and bad guys actually were. And we can do that applying it to a lot of areas, which is where we can look at a lot of economic principles and philosophies from American history, from world history, using original documents. Yeah. So you guys obviously are like the fact checker for anything that people say about whether it's founding fathers or American history, things like that. For listeners, uh, there's not anyone that, that I know that knows more history than Tim Barton. <laughs> and um, like he can just spit it off dates, timeframes, this person and what happened then. And it's pretty remarkable, but he, he's done it for so long. And, and, you know, you travel and speak, you all have a museum with all these documents. And so y'all, y'all are just passionate basically about uh, keeping America the way kind of the founding fathers intended it to be based off of, you know, biblical principles and things like that. But I guess to start with just the history of it, you know, America's founded and, you know, we're breaking away from England. What form of government, why did they want to leave England? And what form of government did our founding fathers want to have, you know, and why they came to America to start a new nation? Yeah, it's really kind of a, a very broad question, but it's a great question to start with. We we lose track a lot of even the the origins of America, which if you're going to go to the origins of America, you really could back all the way up to Christopher Columbus because this is kind of right for for Western Europeans. This is when somebody discovered there was a new continent, and and people will often point out, well, Columbus wasn't the first guy to discover this new continent. Well, that's true. I mean, we can point to Vikings all the way back before Columbus that had gone into regions we know now as Canada, came all the way across as far as like Minnesota, um, but. The, the Vikings weren't publicizing this discovery to Western Europeans. And so, mm-hmm. right, the English and the French and the Spanish did not know about this. With that being said, the, the very reason Columbus wanted to go west in the first place was if you go back to what was known as the Silk Road, right? Marco Polo, is, as he discovers all of these new locations that were previously really unreported to a lot of Europeans, as, as his travels and expeditions take him all the way over to Asia, and he begins opening up trade and he's bringing things from some of the nations he stopped in along the way. And, and then from Asia, he's bringing things back. And these, these other nations and other cities are beginning to see some really cool stuff. And well, I've never, I've never had cinnamon before. That's delicious, right? I've, I've never had this cane sugar. And, and there's things that are being discovered along the way with whether it be fruits or vegetables or spices that people have never seen. And, and all of a sudden trade opens up, but then you have the Ottoman empire that comes in and under the Ottoman empire, there's in uh, and, and this Muslim regime, they are seeing all these trade individuals and wagons 
go before them. And these trade wagons are loaded with valuable stuff. And so the, the Ottoman Turks say, hey, let's, let's just go take these wagons full of goods and this is going to be perfect. And so it interrupts the trade route. Well, when the trade route is interrupted over this, this intercontinental land route where people are just traveling across land from Europe into Asia, well, now they can't travel safely across land. And this is where it opens up to sailing and people are now going to sail from Europe to Asia so they don't have to deal with these kind of attacking outlaws, so to speak, Muslim Turks. And this is what leads to Columbus saying, hey, instead of going all the way around Africa, right, sailing south all the way around the tip, the southern part of Africa, getting into Asia or trying to sail around the northern part of Europe and right north around Russia back down to over in Asia, let's let's just sail directly west. Columbus knew that the earth was round. He just had no idea there was other continents in the way from Mm -hmm. Europe to Asia. All this to say, right, this leads to the opening and discovery of the new world. And Columbus at the time was an Italian selling for the Spanish. So the Spanish are the ones to start having the first colonies. But along the way, when Europeans find out what's going on, you have English, French, and Spanish colonies. So those are kind of the big players of that time in the world. Um, at, at least as far as the Western uh, civilization era is concerned. And when the English settlers begin coming to America, the vast majority of the colonies that are settled under English rule, it was actually people escaping tyrannical, oppressive governments looking for freedom. And the number one freedom they were looking for was religious freedom. But as they come to America, this became significant because, for example, the pilgrims, they, they set up a lot of foundational stuff that we still do in America today, including a free market economic system. But they started uh, with the the pilgrims and the Puritans as, as over several decades, tens of thousands of people are coming into the New England area and the colonies. They start public schools wanting to make sure their kids can read. And, and specifically, they want them to be able to read the Bible and religious liberty and the rights of conscience are a very big deal for them. And you can go down the list of the things they started and established, but to your initial point, they started a Republican form of government. And the reason was, this was not the era of republics, it was the era of monarchs, but the pilgrims specifically, their pastor, the Reverend John Greenwood, he actually give, delivered several uh, sermons, kind of lectures, so to speak, to them. But he explained that that God's design for humans was not to live under a tyrant, not to have tyrannical rule. The idea from God, and he pointed to places in the Bible, like in Exodus 18, verse 21, or Deuteronomy chapter 1, or Deuteronomy 16, which God told the Israelites, you need to choose out people from among you to represent you and let them be the leaders and rulers. And it actually goes through this like election, elective process of what became known as a republic, or I mean, really there's republics before this, right? But what we've known, and it kind of embraces notion of a Republican form of government where we elect our leaders, the pilgrims are the ones who really established this idea in America. And the pilgrims didn't come till 1620. There actually were elections in Jamestown in 1619, but they could only elect people that the the royal uh, governor or the king had approved uh, to be in those positions. So it wasn't really gotcha. open, fair yeah. elections. But in Plymouth, they said, no, we don't believe in hierarchies. Any of the common people, right? Normal people can run. You don't have to be a lord or a noble to be a representative and, and and ruler of the people. So a lot of what we see even in America today goes back to the early emphasis of the pilgrims. Okay. So were the pilgrims the first one to have kind of this free economic system that we now call or define as capitalism? 
Yeah, so they're the ones, I mean, largely we would say get the most credit for it, but really there's some super interesting developments. Uh, Jamestown and Plymouth both went through some very challenging times. And this is the history of most early colonies. When you have people coming from Europe to a new world, the new world, the, the land was different, right? I mean, the crops were different. The, the animal species to some extent were different. The hunting and the fishing was different. And so, right, Jamestown in 1607 is when the Jamestown colony is founded. And as you go through the history of Jamestown and, and John Smith becomes one of their early leaders and governors, and, and we actually have uh, several books, The History of John Smith, which uh, I, I know people can't see if they're just listening to this, but I'm holding things up right now as we're talking. We have, we actually have the history books of Jamestown, the history of John Smith. And it, it really is fascinating that, that their early winters there, they had a very difficult time of people starving to death because they they didn't know how to properly hunt and fish and grow crops they didn't know how to navigate the weather it was life was just different than where they had left and it leads into very interestingly enough governor john smith passes a law because under english system they did have a hierarchy right you had the king and the king would appoint lords and nobles and the lords and nobles he would give them property so there wasn't really private property like we know today because under a king the king owned everything and the king would allow people that were in his favor to have property as long as they remained loyal and right mm -hmm. would give whatever kind of due diligence to the king and a percentage of their crops etc be ready on call for their military but there was a hierarchy so you had your lords and your nobles and then you would have your 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 peasants and your serfs and people that would work for the lords and the nobles and when jamestown is founded as a colony you have some wealthy people in jamestown and you have a lot of people who are not wealthy in jamestown and you had indentured servants people who would uh, agree to work for someone for a, a certain amount of years if they would that the wealthy person would pay for my voyage to the new world because i want to go to the new world i don't have money if you'll buy me a ticket i'll work for you for seven years and at the end of seven years you would get your freedom and you could have land you were given a parcel of land anywhere between 40 all the way up to 250 acres depending on where you were uh, you became a free landowner in America, but but this leads into John Smith recognized that some of the people with money, they were they were staying home and they weren't working. And they said, no, I don't need to work. I have people working for me. And John Smith recognized their first winter, almost half of the people of Jamestown died because they didn't have enough food to survive. They hadn't grown enough crops. And so they're coming into their second winter. And John Smith says, guys, if we don't all work, if, if we will not all be productive, we will not grow enough crops. We won't have, we, we will not have cut enough wood for fuel. We won't have built enough homes to protect us, right? From the, the storms, the, the, the snow that's coming. We're going to all have to work or we will not survive another winter. So he passed a law and the law said, every man must work. And if any man would not work, he will not eat. Now, the law specifically is a verbatim quote from the Bible. Second Thessalonians 3.10 says, if any man will not work, he shall not eat. That's actually the law that was passed in Jamestown under John Smith, where he required everybody to work. Well, as he's requiring these people with money to work, many of them were very frustrated, right? They're saying, hey, under the king, we didn't have to work, right? You're a jerk. You're making us work. We hate you. In September of 1609, there was a gunpowder explosion. This is leading into the winter. The gunpowder explosion injured one person. The one person was Captain John Smith, who was the governor at the time. Hmm. And some of the, the wealthy people, they said, oh, man, John Smith was smoking his pipe, you know, next to the gunpowder. He was just foolish. That's why it blew up and he got hurt. 
Well, historians really recognize that this was probably a sabotage event. In fact, John Smith even thought it was sabotage. They were trying to get him out of the way because he was making everybody work. And when the gunpowder explosion happens, John Smith is injured. He has to go back to England to recover from his injuries. While he leaves, well, now the wealthy people, they they get to choose a new leader and they choose a new leader and really great for them. They they have revoked this law that says everyone has to work. And they said, no, if you have money and you can hire someone to work for you, you don't have to work. Well, we know that they were not able to harvest all the crops, that their productivity decreased. And this led to the winter known as a starving time in Jamestown. And the starving time in Jamestown is really awful to actually read about. We can go back to some of the early documents and accounts of it. And in that winter, they started off with 490 people. At the end of that winter, there were only 60 people left alive. Wow. Uh, The starving time, very, I mean, descriptive is referencing the fact that when winter hit, they, they didn't have enough crops to survive. So once they had eaten the food, they have no food left. And now they got to figure out what they're going to do. So first they said, well, let's, let's eat our livestock. So they ate, right? The horses, the cattle, the oxen, whatever they had. And with 490 people, your cattle and oxen and horses aren't going to last all that long. Well, they run out of food. And so at this point they say, well, let's, let's eat whatever else we can find. So they start eating what we would know as the pets. They ate the dogs and the cats. And, and at this point now they're just scavenging. If they can find a rat or a rabbit, anything they can get. And during this time, there are multiple people dying every day from starvation, from the, the, the conditions, the, uh, cold weather, whatever else is happening around them. And as people are dying every single day, they're, they're having multiple burials and these mass graves. And it, along the way in the winter, as, as now dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people have died, it, it occurs to somebody, you know, we're burying people who have died and they still have meat on their bones. Well, hmm. why don't we just eat the meat off the bones of the dead people and then right? We can just bury the bones, but that way we're not wasting good meat. They literally turned to cannibalism and it got so bad. Governor John Smith and his history of Jamestown actually even recounted an incident where there was a man who, he was a husband. He had a pregnant wife. He took his wife down to the creek. He actually killed his wife and ate her and the unborn child. Now, the kind of the irony of this, the the people of Jamestown recognized this was really evil. You have killed your wife who was alive and she was pregnant and you were eating your wife and unborn child. And so they executed the man. But here's the irony. After they executed the man, they ate him, him, right? Like this is so crazy. Jamestown was so messed up. Well, at the end of this winter, there's only 60 people left and the people that remained, I mean, and you can imagine the stories that were getting out as, as then in the spring ships are coming and they're like, where is everybody? And there's these mass graves and the people that are left behind, you can tell they're not right, right? They, they, they've gone through something, something really wrong has happened here. And the story gets out of what happened. So when a, a new British leader gets there, there's a new governor appointed and they go and they, passed John Smith's law yet again, which is really a law from the Bible that said every man must work. And if you don't work, you don't get to eat. That was a requirement. But this is significant because early on, the idea of Jamestown was that you shouldn't be forced to work 
that other people can work and we'll all just receive the benefits of somebody else's labor. Now, this is a little bit of a different form of socialism because it's a hierarchy socialism, but mm -hmm. the people who had money said, we don't need to work, right? We'll let other people do work for us and we'll just eat the food that they've gone and provided. But Jamestown really tried this experiment of socialism, it failed. If you go to, to 1620, when the pilgrims arrived, they arrived in November up in the New England area. And as a Texan, uh, we, we really have no perspective of like a really cold winter in Texas, right? We'll have a, a couple of weeks of cold. Um, but you know, it can snow one day and the next day can be 80 degrees. It's ridiculous in Texas, but in new England, if you arrive in November, there's already snow on the ground in many places and many locations. It can be very cold and miserable when the pilgrims first arrive, they, that first winter were not prepared for winter because when they land, the, the place they land, there were no homes built. They, they had already eaten through the majority of the food they had with them on the ship. Uh, so they didn't have food. They didn't have homes, lodging. They didn't have fuel to build fires. The conditions overwhelmed the majority of the pilgrims and, and about half of the pilgrims died that first winter. So only half the pilgrims were left that following spring, but this is where, I mean, really cool. It, it, providentially, they meet Somerset, who speaks a little bit of English, and, and then Squanto comes along, who speaks a lot more English, teaches them how to hunt and fish and grow crops, and they're able to start growing crops. And historically, it's worth noting the pilgrims were actually a church congregation that was coming to the New World as a church to try to find religious freedom away from the oppression under the king. And as they get to the New World, and, and half their people died that first winter, Governor Bradford thought the best thing we can do is we will we will do something that in, in the book of Acts in the Bible, it, it tells a story about the early church and how they all came together and everybody shared everything they had together. And it was the common storehouse system. And so the pilgrims came up with this idea, the common storehouse system, that we're we're just going to all work together and we're all going to be one big family and no matter who does what, we're all going to enjoy the benefits together. Governor Bradford tracks this in his journal, and, and he talks about how much of a failure the system was because people quickly learned that no matter how hard somebody did or didn't work, if everybody received the same benefit, it encouraged people into idleness and laziness is what he says. He said people begin to fake sickness and injury because they realize that I don't have to work and I can still enjoy the same reward, right? The same portion of food as everybody else, whether I work or not. So if if you're going to receive a reward, whether you work or not, why would you want to work if, if you're going to be rewarded for not working? Governor Bradford talks about it, which, by the way, leads into their second winter. And uh, they have, again, another brutal winter where a lot of their people die again. And Governor Bradford, in his journal, he actually says that, we thought we were wiser than God. And he references that in the Bible, it says that every man must provide for his own family, that there, there should be individual responsibility, that there's a family unit. And so he said, we're going to change things in Plymouth. And in Plymouth, every person will get their own parcel of land that you get to grow your own crops because they had a community garden and uh, really like a community meat house and everything was community and everybody shared mm -hmm. together. He said, from now on, everybody gets their own private property and you can grow your own crops and your own corn. And they were able just in a matter of a couple of years to produce seven times, they grew seven times more corn than they had when they first arrived. They became the most productive English colony in the entire English system per capita. 
And it was when they shifted to an individual responsibility system. And this is what really, this is what began to lay the foundation for the free enterprise in America. In fact, the Pilgrims opened the very first ever free market trading post in America. It was called the Aptuxet Trading Post in 1627. And this was the first trading post in America that did not belong to a king, right? The, the, the king of France or Spain or England. No, this belonged entirely to the Pilgrims. Uh, they started one independent of the king and they didn't have to pay royalties to the king, etc. It was a free market trading post. And they're the ones who really laid the foundation for the what became the free market system in America. And, and they actually used a lot of biblical principles to do this, that you reward a, uh, the labor, that you reward productivity, um, that you reward uh, profit, the more productive you are, right? The, the, the more increase you get from what you've done. A lot of principles that are true in the free market, they started, but it's interesting that the first two English colonies in America, both of them tried versions of socialism and neither of them, of their versions of socialism worked. In fact, it led in both cases to a lot of death because of the unproductivity that came about because of socialism. Okay. So, you, so basically you're kind of given a history of how capitalism free enterprise started coming about and it goes way before 1776. Um, you know, that obviously I guess 1776 happened because they wanted that form of government. But I guess before then, you know, there wasn't things like, well, I guess socialism was tried, but that wasn't the title. You had monarchy, you had anarchies where kings, you had royalty families that were in place. And that's how um, governments were kind of structured and ruled. And then it kind of shifted with, I guess, pilgrims wanting more freedom uh, or people that moved to the West wanting more freedom. And so they come up with this kind of government or I shouldn't say government, but economic structure to where they all work for themselves and what you do and what you're able to build and grow is <clears throat> what you get. And if you want to sell that, if you want to share that, that is up right. to you, but we're not all responsible for putting a certain amount of, I don't know, wheat into a pot in the middle. And then we all get the same. You're saying yeah. that was tried and didn't work. Totally. And this is where you, I mean, right. It's very obvious that right? the, the profit incentive, right? That the more, if you get to keep levels of your productivity, well, then the more productive you are, the more you get. And to your point, if you can buy or sell or trade it, well, it encourages you to be even more productive because you now are directly benefited from your effort, from your productivity. But if it's my job to grow everybody else's garden and I don't get a direct benefit from me growing everybody else's garden. Well, why would, why would I want to bust my tail, right? I'm, I'm giving all my effort and energy doing something for somebody else and I get no direct benefit or reward. It, it decreases the profit motive and incentive. And this is what early on in Plymouth, they realized, man, we need this profit motive and incentive. And, and it's interesting, you know, we, we, you've mentioned 1776 a couple of times when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. Th this is what most people in kind of our modern era, they're like, that's when the free market system started in America. No, there was a free market system in America way before Adam Smith and The Wealth of Nations came out. And in fact, the founding fathers were advocating the free market system before Adam Smith had written The Wealth of Nations, and it was because of, of some of what had been explored and tried and really, I mean, some of these biblical principles that were being applied along the way. And this is something that it, it used to be known as a common sense thought and perspective, right? This idea of that you, if you work really hard, you should be able to benefit from your hard work and effort and, and specifically your productivity. And this is where 
there is a nuanced difference. You can work really hard and not be productive. And there's some people who work really hard and they, they get angry when they're not as productive as somebody else. And they want to take right somebody else's productivity and say, no, you, you should give that to me because I work really hard. Well, I mean, ultimately you, you want to reward productivity because if you work really hard, but you don't work in a, a productive manner, well, you're not going to produce as much, but that's, that's not everybody else's fault necessarily, right? Maybe you, you have a bad strategy. You're implementing bad principles, a bad philosophy. There are things that you can do. There are known structures, known systems that if you do certain things, you can be very productive. And it's really productivity that was rewarded and productivity increases that profit motive and profit incentive. Okay. Can't talk with Tim and not get a history lesson. So <laughs> see, I, mean, I think when most people, most people think of capitalism, they think of just America kind of being the first nation to do it, but it goes back before then. I do want to ask you this because you mentioned uh, the Bible verse where they all come in and they share their wealth and acts. Would that be something that is more of an advocate for socialism in a sense because you talked about how they tried that and kind of didn't work what uh what would you kind of say to that yeah so i mean it, there's kind of two responses and one is based on it for for people that are listening if you're a person of faith i would have a, a little different argument than if you're not a person of faith because if you're not a person of faith and using the bible to give an explanation might not be very relevant for you if you don't really believe right. or like or follow the bible but if you're a person of faith as a christian then one of the things we can talk about with in, in, in the book of Acts, early on in the book of Acts, when you read Acts chapter four, Acts chapter five, and it talks about they came together and, and everybody gave what they had so that no man lacked anything, people would argue, well, that was socialism and look how well it worked. Well, it didn't work as well as most people think, but, but first of all, let's back up and point out it was voluntary, right? Under socialism, socialism is not a voluntary contribution. Socialism is in much more in a command economy direction where you have a government who actually controls private property, a government who controls um, resources, who controls goods and controls distribution of goods. So it's very different if you as a generous person are saying, mm -hmm. I, out of the goodness of my heart, want to help other people, which by the way, I think, right, for, for many of us, the, the, the more that we are able to acquire and, and the more blessings that we have, and I would, as a person of faith, I would say, right, the more that, that God allows me to make, the more productive I am, the more I want to use it to help other people. I want to be generous. And one of the reasons I want to be better with money is so I can be more generous, right? Like I would love to be the guy who is able to buy a car for the single mom raising her kids and her car is breaking down. Like I would love to have the money be like, hey, let me buy you a car. Like how cool would that be to be that person? I want to be able to be generous, but that means I need to have money and, and know how to use money and et cetera. With that being said, in a socialistic system, it's not a voluntary contribution. In the book of Acts, it was a voluntary contribution. It wasn't required by the government. And we know that it actually didn't even work because later on in the book of Acts, you had the apostles who said, hey, we need to get some people to come in that can help take care of the poor and the needy because right for for peter he said i need to focus on like sharing the gospel of jesus and having to to try to navigate all these people that are hungry and need help along the way this should be something that we should have other people helping so we we can kind of compartmentalize these roles so we all have a job and working together we can accomplish all of it well well why did they need to bring in and this is where if you're familiar with the book of acts there's a, a individual named stephen and stephen is 
uh, one of the believers, actually, he was persecuted, he was killed, murdered for believing in Jesus, but he was one of the ones that was chosen to help take care of the poor and needy. Well, if everybody's giving everything they have and they're still poor and needy, how does that work? Because if you are rewarding people for being unproductive, what are you encouraging? You're encouraging their unproductivity. Mm-hmm. We, we obviously, like nobody wants anybody to starve to death. That's not what we're encouraging. However, we don't want to give people so much that they are, they are very comfortable not having a job, right? One of the things I think kind of as an interesting side note, I would love to see, right? People who are physically capable of having a job, but choose not to, and instead have, have welfare on, on some situation. I want to be very clear, right? I, I understand if, man, there are single moms out there who have three jobs and they're busting their tail, everything they can do, and they're getting welfare too, man, God bless those people because they're trying so hard and, and I, I want the best for them, but I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about people who are, they're physically, bodily, able and capable of having a job, but they would rather receive a government paycheck than get a job. I think this is where there was a time in American history where there used to be a a work requirement that you have to be actively pursuing work, uh, pursuing a job. You can only have welfare for so many years if you didn't have a job. But I think if, if we said today, right, for people that are physically capable and have, don't have a job, that maybe we should require 20 or 30 hours of community service for them to get that paycheck. And, and, and Stu, what I think would happen is people that were required to, to have 30 hours community service, they would get frustrated, throw up their hands and be like, oh, I might as well get a real job. And we'd be like, yes, just go get a real job, right? Like this would solve that problem. But if, if we are going to incentivize and encourage people to not have a job, all we're going to see is more and more people who don't want a job and they want to be paid for not having a job. That, that's not the way life or society or healthy economies function. And so in the book of Acts, when people say, yeah, but, but, you know, socialism, they had socialism there. Well, no, it was voluntary, which is not socialism. And number two, it didn't even work there because they still had all kinds of poor and needy people that they had to bring in extra people to help take care of the poor and needy. So even in this example, as a person of faith, that socialism does not work. There's never been an example when we talk about true socialism that it's ever been productive. Yeah. Well, this, the simple thing with when people ask about, you know, that verse and trying to say that Bible's promoting socialism, to me, the simple thing is the government was not the one telling them to do that. Socialism is a type of government economic structure where through taxes, through welfare, whatever it is, which is, you know, through taxes, um, it is giving everyone the same thing. The people, the key word you used there was voluntary. <laughs> they were voluntarily being philanthropists, coming together. Cool. I have a cool, you know, thing where we all donate a certain amount and uh, everyone gets their fair share. But I think that's a key distinction there of understanding of voluntary versus government economic structure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money Vision U. If this is something that added value to you, then please subscribe, leave a review, and share. We are passionate about teaching financial literacy so you can learn to take control of your financial future. If you want to learn more, then follow us on social media platforms at MoneyVisionU. We look forward to catching you in the next class.